Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson, Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy with Vitalist Health Foundation. On today's episode, the 100th episode of the Vitalist Spark podcast, we're capping off Women's History Month by bringing you a conversation with Dr. Amalia Luxardo, CEO of the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona. Dr. Luxardo graciously shares her personal journey to her leadership role at the Women's Foundation and gives us a glimpse into how Arizona's women and girls are forging new paths to social, political, and economic change. Enjoy. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Amalia Luxardo of the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona. Amalia, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for joining us. For those of our podcast audience who aren't familiar with you or the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona, give a little bit of background, if you would. Sure. I'm a first gen here. My family is originally from Argentina. I was born stateside in Miami and Florida, and then I went back and forth for a really, really long time. I did the thing that you're not supposed to do as a Latina young woman. I moved out of the house when I was 18 to go to school. I know. (laughs) It's so unheard of. I guess not so much these days, but I feel like it was still pretty taboo when I did that. I think I consider myself to be kind of from all over the place because like I said, since I moved out when I was 18, I've since lived in in New York and DC and San Diego. And now I'm here in the great state of Arizona as the CEO of this amazing organization and making systems change for women and girls across the state, which is probably the best experience I've ever had in my entire life. You made a big jump there from coming stateside from Argentina and then becoming the CEO of the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona. So tell us a little bit about that journey. How does one ultimately end up in a CEO position for a foundation in Arizona? You know, if I had the formula, I would write a book. (laughs) (laughs) When I started my educational slash professional career, I thought I was going to be an attorney. And that was really at the whim of my parents. I think most of us who are our first gen or probably the first young people that are part of black and brown families that go to college, there's this expectation to become a doctor or an engineer or an attorney. And those are basically your career tracks. And so since my mother always insisted that I always had something to say, I figured that the attorney would be the appropriate track. So that's what I did. I went to undergrad, I went to grad school, and then I went to law school. And then I realized while in law school that it wasn't for me. My train of thought was a little bit more creative than the law would have permitted, essentially. And so in the meantime, I had been in public service that entire time. So I had worked with attorneys up until I came to the foundation, the social justice sector, largely working for the Hispanic Latino community, serving immigrants. And so that career started back in D.C. when I worked for legal aid. And then I also worked over for the state attorney in New York. And so, like I said, my entire academic and professional career was intrinsically dedicated to the law, helping the Hispanic Latino community. And then what happened here in Arizona was that life circumstances, despite me doing everything, quote, unquote, right, leaving the house, going to school, doing all of the things, things personally went sideways for a period of time. And so despite having all of my credentials and and all of this experience, I found myself in line at the Department of Economic Security 
asking for benefits so that I was able to feed my then one and a half year old son. And so not that you have to live these traumatic experiences in order to be a CEO, but it certainly shifted what I wanted to dedicate myself to down the line. And so it didn't necessarily remove the passion that I had for what I had done, what I had dedicated my life to the entire time, but certainly having that experience and waiting in line for the public benefits that I needed. I don't know, you know, something happened when sort of life gives you some things and things click for you. And I just knew that my heart was in a really different place. I feel like what what you're getting to though is, I mean, everybody, a lot of us have like a pivot point where our eyes were open. We thought we knew what we wanted and and then we pivoted to something. Thank you. Yeah, that's what it was at that moment in time. That was my pivot point. That's a great phrase. And so that was probably the darkest moment in my life. It lasted, it lasted for about a year. I mean, I remember having to have the conversation with my caseworker and she said, you know, you're making 50 cents too much in order to receive your $164 a month to feed your kid. Mm. And I had to go back to my supervisor to cut the two extra hours that I was working at a, at a research firm that wasn't paying a livable wage clearly in order for me to get the benefit because the SNAP benefit outweighed the two extra hours of work. Right. Right before the Women's Foundation, I was actually over at the Florence Project, which is what got me out of the the system, so to speak. And there I headed their philanthropic department. And again, working with attorneys, they do really, really good work. They're the only nonprofit organization that provides free legal services to detain immigrants across the state. But I knew that after a few years that it was just time for a change. And so when the opportunity came with the Women's Foundation, I threw my hat in the ring and hoped for the best. And fortunately, I had a board that really believed in me and believed in who I was as a human and believed that my lived experience along with all of my credentials was equally important. And here we are. (laughs) So like I said, no secret sauce here, but a series of, of opportunities along with a lot of really hard work is what got me to where I am today. So let's start talking about your work with the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona, which is still a a relatively new name. I'm looking at your website right now with this relatively new logo, which I think it's one of the coolest logos that I've seen for any organization of late. So tell us about the work of the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona. And during your tenure with the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona, How have you seen the work evolve? So when I first started at the foundation, we were the Women's Foundation of Southern Arizona. Despite that name, we already had statewide reach by way of our advocacy work. And so I remember when I first started, I started right at the beginning of the legislative session. (laughs) And so basically I was swimming in, in very deep waters. I also knew that at some point the Women's Foundation was going to move forward. Now, what that looked like, I had no idea. What I did know was that part of my interview process, I was asked on several occasions, would you ever go statewide? And my answer was, and still holds true today. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But if that's what the community calls for, then that's what we will do. And we will co-create what that looks like 
with all of our stakeholders, community members, nonprofit partners, donors, the board, the whole gamut of things. And so I just wanted to make sure that if we were going to move forward with now a name change and a logo change and all these things, but really talk about having that statewide reach and having our brand reflect that, that we were doing it in a way that wasn't self-serving. As far as our work goes, the short version of our work is that we break barriers to create system change, and we do that with a four-pronged approach. The first is philanthropy, which is what we're historically known for here in, in Arizona. What we had before was annual grants program that was a one-year, one-time application, and you would get $40,000 of unrestricted dollars for that one year. That since has changed. All of our grant programming now, with the exception of a couple that, that we can get into details, but the, the larger grant opportunities are renewable for up to three years. The amounts have gone up to $65,000. And again, those are all unrestricted operating dollars because we know that our nonprofit partners, whether they're here in Arizona or across the state, which is what our reach is now with our philanthropic resources, know the community best and they know their work best and they know what their needs are. And so we're not here to dictate what it is that they need to do, nor do they have to create a program in order to be eligible to receive these funds. That's one of our pillars. Another is research. We believe that nonpartisan research informs all of our priorities and all of our focus. So this research is gathered both from our nonprofit partners, from our community, and from institutions of higher education. I'll give you an example. We have one of the most recent pieces of research that we have is the self-sufficiency standard. If folks are curious, they can go on our website and go online. It's basically an interactive table where you can go in. I mean, even you, Marcus, can go in and put in your family structure. If it's if it's you, if it's you and wife, if it's you, wife and kids, the ages, if they're school age or not school age. And once you put in all that information along with where you live, it essentially spits out the salary that you need in order to have a livable wage here in Arizona, depending on your region. And so... Before we published all of that, we made sure that we got together with folks from our Family Advisory Council, which is a group comprised of single mothers, to make sure that these numbers and the data that we're putting out there into the world rings true. So we have the academic information that's vetted by the actual lived experience, because again, we think that both of those components are incredibly important in order for us to move the needle for women and girls in an equitable way. That's what feeds our next pillar, which is our advocacy work, where we strive to remove systemic barriers facing women and girls with policy change. One of the bills that we passed last year was HB 2016. In a previous iteration, the Department of Economic Security, DES, where folks get their public benefits, DES required mom for the purposes of you know, this conversation as we use a gender lens to work a 20 hour work week. Now, we know typically folks that are in the system receiving public benefits are working at places of work that don't necessarily provide thriving wages, which is why they need those benefits in order to fill that gap. What we've done is changed the law so that mom is now allowed to go to school full time and still receive the benefit of the child care subsidy piece. 
And so she doesn't have to work that part-time job at what could intrinsically be a dead-end job in order to receive the benefit. She can now go to school full-time and work towards, for us specifically, a 12 to 18-month certificate so that she's able to make the living, thriving wage that she needs in order to actually support her family. Those are the three of our pillars. And so as a result of that bill, what we've done is create a pilot program that's the living, breathing, practical work of that bill. It's called the Pathways for Single Moms. It has a much longer name, but I condensed it down for this conversation. And essentially what we've done is raise the funding so that mom, so that we pay for tuition, rent, emergency assistance, tech support, basically anything that would stop mom from going to school. And so she has all of those financial resources available to her and she is able to do that and focus on that. And in the meantime, also getting the childcare subsidy piece by way of DES. And our hope is that she graduates in a really short amount of time. Like I said, 12 to 18 months, we've partnered with local community colleges for a very specific certificate programs with jobs that we've identified that are going to do really well over the next five years so that, again, she's able to get out and not have to look back at DES and request those public benefits or experience what I experienced is not having to cut their hours just because the benefit of getting the food stamps or whatever it is outweighs the benefit of working those extra hours at work. We wanted to make sure that if we're going to be moving families along, we're going to be moving families along forever, essentially. And so that's the innovative part of our work is creating these sorts of programs and piloting them to make sure that when other nonprofit organizations want to take on projects like these, we know what the best practices are and they don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's the very long version (laughs) of who we are and what we do. So that's a great legislative win in your past that you mentioned. Is there anything at the state legislature that is moving forward right now that we should be keeping an eye on, even if it's just as simple as a bill number or a concept of what's being spoken about at the legislature? Yes. So right now there's a couple of bills that support the expansion of Medicaid coverage for women and children. One in particular that we're running is HB 2111 to expand the Healthy Families Arizona program here. And so we'll be sending out calls to action down the line when we need folks to register for requests to speak. And if you're interested in doing that and participating in any of our advocacy components, I strongly encourage you to go on our website and sign up and we'll make sure that we that we send out those notifications to you. Fantastic. And that is a bill that Vitalist has also signed in in support of. It is evidence-based. It helps to prevent abuse and neglect within families. So I definitely echo that invitation for folks to look it up and consider offering support. Thank you. It's really impressive because you're not just thinking of yourself as a funder. The Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona is is more than funding, although that's a critical pillar, as you called it. It's not just an avenue to develop more research, although that's a critical pillar. It's not just an advocacy organization, but you're really focusing on how each one of those assets feed into one another. And so you're not, you're not producing research for the sake of producing research. That's it's right. to feed your advocacy. It's not you're funding things just 
to create a series of kind gestures or just to give out money for the sake of giving out money. It's to inform research and ultimately change policy and ultimately affect people's lives in a positive way. Yeah, thanks. I think it's important for folks to recognize that even if we had all of the wealth in the world as a funding institution, there's only so much money that you can throw at a nonprofit organization without looking at all of those other components. Because at the end of the day, nonprofits will continue to have the challenges that they have if there are systems in play that are pitted against us. And I mean the collective us, women, people of color, the nonprofit sector. And so something's got to give and we have to really look at things holistically. And when we're supporting communities, we have to support them from all of those angles. So you laid out this continuum of successes that the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona has had you mentioned the legislation that you were able to introduce and help to pass. Although I I know that it wasn't a one-time attempt, especially with the legislation. So for those of our audience who are listening to this and saying, wow, that's an impressive continuum of activities and successes that the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona has had, we should be able to knock it out of the park as easily as they have. What would you tell them about that journey? It's not easy. (laughs) And as you said, each of these assets feed into one another. And so it wasn't just us pounding the pavement at the Capitol. It was that research component that was critical in order for us to be moving the bill forward. I will say HB 2016 passed, but it passed in year three. The first year, unfortunately, it just got stuck due to political matters. And in year two, it was in the the height of the pandemic. The session had closed and we just didn't make it in. Was there a problem with the bill? Absolutely not, but there were other priorities. And so we just, we couldn't slide in through any of the front doors, back doors, side doors, any of those things. And so it was year three that was the charmer, but certainly not easy. It was incredibly stressful. We're just grateful that it passed when it passed because as women, we lost 36 years of employment gains in a really short amount of time. And when we're talking about rebuilding the workforce, particularly here in Arizona, I think it's incredibly important, not just for our representatives, but for our audience in general, if there's businesses out there to to do so with, with women in mind, because if you rebuild your workforce and put women first and give them the right resources, they're not going anywhere. I mean, the research has shown that over and over that women are, are in for the long haul. I think that connects to this next question, which is, tell us about the experience of the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona over the last two years during the height of the COVID pandemic. And what does it mean for the short and midterm future of the foundation? So our experience over the the pandemic was a challenging one, like most nonprofit organizations. So Despite the fact that we are a philanthropic institution, we women's funds across the board are not traditional philanthropic institutions in that we don't generally have very large endowments. You know, we don't we don't have a hundred and fifty million dollar portfolio by any means. We raise our funds. We're scrappy institutions. We raise our own our own funds to give them away that same year. Based on what we were hearing from our nonprofit partners, what we did that year in lieu of having our 
quote unquote competitive grants, we just cut checks to the organizations that we've worked with for a number of years that we're seeing an influx of need based on on what their participants were saying. And so, for example, we knew that the number of DV cases was going through the roof because women were trapped essentially in these really toxic relationships and most felt that they didn't have a way out because there was no childcare available, there were no jobs available, and there was no light at the end of the tunnel, essentially. And so we knew that we had to support Emerge was one of those nonprofit organizations that received emergency funding from us. And so there was no reporting requirement. There was no application requirement. We took whatever we had in our capacity and just cut those checks out. We also knew that it was an incredibly important time to be collaborative. And if there were other resources that were available that perhaps could not be dispersed by another institution that we would be glad to lead the way. So one of those examples was working with the city of Tucson in their Somos Uno funding. They had several different buckets of funding resources. And what we ended up with was the quote unquote bucket where we would cut individual checks to families that were deeply impacted by the pandemic. And we ended up redistributing nearly $7 million in a very short amount of time. (laughs) But we were fortunate in that we had the few staff that we had on board at that time had experience with government contracts. And so we were able to turn that around in a really short amount of time. And we had to, we had to. And I remember getting phone calls from families. There was one that clearly stayed with me. It was mom that just the week before was at her home. She lost it. She was calling me from her car and living in a car with her three kids. And so we just had to turn those funds around as quickly as we possibly could. There was no way that ethically we could have held on to them. So I think for us was having the flexibility to pivot and knowing that having the capacity and the wherewithal to know that there's an opportunity for us to do better in the community, we, we just have to take it. And sometimes it's a risk, but in this case, I think it was a risk that was completely worth it. I, you know, the staff worked incredibly, incredibly long, hard hours to, to get that out. But at the end of the day, we made an impact on thousands upon thousands of families and parents and their children. And they were able to make it a month or two longer in their homes in some instances, as opposed to getting evicted during the holiday season. And so for that, I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for. The other part of your question is, what does that mean for us Now, I think it means that as an organization, we understand that we have to be adaptable, that we have to be flexible. We also know that we are servants of the community. And so we need to make sure that as we're moving our mission forward, that it's community centered. And so if it is community centered, how are we doing right by them, essentially? And it seems like that's a through line throughout all of your work and your history with the foundation is really, I'll use the word ground truthing in order to ensure that the work of the foundation mirrors the needs of those whom you're serving. Absolutely. So you'd mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I misstate this, but the priority populations served by the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona are women and girls in the state of Arizona. Correct. We know that during the pandemic, domestic violence cases skyrocketed. We know that 
while the majority of jobs in the state of Arizona have been recovered, that is not the case necessarily with women in the state of Arizona. Do these trends have an impact on any of the priorities or the focus areas for the foundation in the coming months, in the coming years? How are you thinking about some of the just the terrible things that have happened over the past two years and what it means for your future work? Here's a short version of that answer, and then and then we can talk a little bit more. But essentially, the pandemic didn't necessarily make us shift our work, but it certainly pushed it into high speed because our mission is to increase the income and assets for women and girls across the state. Our vision is for women and girls of all identities to thrive here in Arizona. And so that always is going to remain true. And we haven't necessarily shifted our priorities. We just knew that we had to accelerate some of those components quicker than in previous years. And so that speaks to that partnership that we had to the city, again, being being flexible and adaptable and being able to pivot, knowing that a large part of these families that were deeply impacted by the pandemic were households that were led by single mothers and making sure that they had the accessibility to the resources that they needed in order for them to support their family, even on a short-term basis. We also know that there's this great need to bring more resources to the region. And so one of the things that we did last year was launch our first statewide grant, specifically the Women and Girls of Color Fund. It's the first grant in the state that's strictly dedicated to organizations that are led by and serving women and girls of color. Again, I'm going to reference research over and over and over because that's just who we are. And that's who I am by nature. I'm an academic. We know that less than 2% of philanthropic dollars support women. Less than half a percent go to nonprofit organizations that serve women and girls of color. And yet, these are the very individuals that are at the front lines of making systems change. And so we needed to... We needed to do our part to ensure that those resources were getting into those communities. All right, let's touch on the name change. Okay. Uh, We touched (laughs) on it earlier. So when did the name change specifically occur? The name changed October of 2021. After a lot of market research, again, making sure that folks were involved in making the decision together with us. Like I said before, we already had our statewide reach by way of our advocacy work. We had decades of experience and proven positive incomes that made us qualified, I think, personally, to add the word state to our name. And frankly, if there was ever a time for us to do a name change, it was now. Because of what happened with the pandemic, again, I had been asked about that and when the timing was right. And this is one of those things that was happened to be accelerated because of the circumstances of the world. And I'm just really grateful that we had the opportunity to do that because now, now we don't have to muddy up the waters with the technicality of a name. And people really understand that our reach and that our impact is for all women and girls here in Arizona. And if you would tell us about this new logo, which for those who are listening to this, which is everyone, because it's a podcast, (laughs) what is this colorful W that I'm looking at and that people can see on your website? Tell us about the origin of this logo. Sure. 
I love this logo. So there's a couple of colors that we brought with us from our previous branding, the teal and the purple. We wanted to reflect some sort of continuity there and not forget our history because our history is so important. If you'll notice the W, at least the way that we read it, sort of reads like a graphic that's going up and that's on purpose to demonstrate our numbers and our impact and the kind of research that we do is typically having positive outcomes on, on our community. We wanted to ensure that it was a continuous line and that it was all together because that's how we work is in conjunction with community. So that's the origin and sort of a little bit of detail on that logo. And, you know, from a personal perspective, it also kind of reminds me a little bit of Wonder Woman. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I could bring up Wonder Woman or not without having to pay royalties to Marvel. So I'm glad. Oh, brought it up. Yeah. And I can't help but also just notice or there's a in, in my mind, there's a connotation with the colors to pride. Mm-hmm. Is that intentional? Yes. As I said, our, our vision is for women and girls of, of all identities to thrive in, in Arizona. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that our logo also reflected inclusivity. Very cool. Dr. Luxardo, it is Women's History Month in the state of Arizona and throughout the U.S. When you think about women's history, broadly speaking, or Women's History Month, what comes to mind? I think about all of the women before me and all of the glass ceilings that they had to break in order for me to be having this conversation with you. I largely think of my mother who carried her family, all of us on her back for decades after getting here to this country. I think about my colleagues, my friends, all of our community members still having to fight for equity somehow in 2022, but also feeling really joyful to be able to do this in partnership with everyone that's fighting the good fight with us today. I think there are some real power players out there. I think the generation that's to come is going to make some incredible changes to our nation. And I just really look forward to what the next iteration of gender equity looks like. This section we're calling your soapbox moment. (laughs) What does the general public or local leadership need to know about the Women's Foundation for the state of Arizona, about philanthropy in general, or about the well-being of Arizona's women and girls? What the public needs to know is that we've been at the forefront of systemic change for decades now. And again, as I said, if there was ever a time to build a state where women and girls of all identities thrive here, the the time is now. We've seen the impact of the pandemic. It's incredibly important for us to start thinking about how we can rebuild ourselves, not only as a state, but as a nation with women at the forefront. I think we're equipped to tackle complex and difficult barriers facing Arizona, Arizona women and girls. And I'm, again, just thrilled at the opportunity to be able to do that with the human beings that are joining me in in moving the needle forward for women and girls. I am going to shamelessly plug our website that you mentioned, since you think it's so great. (laughs) And we also think it's great. And also plug our virtual luncheon. So typically we have an in-person luncheon, but we're hosting a multi-day virtual series this year, which is really different for us. People can register online at www.womengiving.org. And we're going to have, again, a multi-day event where we talk about our advocacy, our research, our community impact. 
we've got a lot of special guest speakers that are going to be joining us this year, which I'm really excited about. And so for folks that really want to know, really want to get a sense, the depth and breadth of all the work that we do, the luncheon is a great place to do that. And I think I saw that one of those luncheon topics, the guest presenter is the author of the book Made. That's right. Stephanie which is also, Land. Which is yeah. also a Netflix series. Yep. Yeah. We're excited. She's an incredibly powerful speaker. And I'm really, really excited for folks to get to know her. Dr. Luxardo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all the great work that you are doing at the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your personal journey to getting to where you are right now as well. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks so much for having me. It was great being here. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you want to learn more about the Women's Foundation for the State of Arizona, check out their website, www.womensgiving.org which is also linked in the show notes. And be sure to sign up for one of their upcoming events. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the Vitalist Spark is now 100. Well, we have 100 episodes. This is a truly incredible feat dating all the way back to 2017 when my prior colleague, John Ford, with the help of community partners like Michael Soto, started documenting the courageous and encouraging works of Arizonans working to improve community health. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all the guests, the team members, and especially you, the listeners, who make this podcast possible. We hope you find these episodes to be not only interesting, but maybe a bit inspiring in your personal and professional lives. As always, many thanks to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for production and sound design. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.